response to the climate and ecological crisis requires heaps of innovation. We need to transform entire industries, reskill the workforce and create new jobs. That's one huge challenge, but one giant opportunity. So how does this affect you and your sector? Content with Purpose partners with professional member associations and trade bodies to delve into the future of their industries, asking the tough questions and showcasing the innovation propelling our net zero ambitions. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how the professionals in those industries are contributing towards our collective efforts to reach net zero and a more sustainable and prosperous future. Leading the Charge, Opportunity in Transition, a podcast series produced by Content with Purpose in partnership with the ECA. Hello, welcome to Leading the Charge, the ECA and Content with Purpose podcast series that delves into how our journey to net zero is transforming the electrotechnical sector. I'm your host, Rob Smith, and today we're talking about skills. None of us would be in the jobs we are today without the right skill set, and if we want to change career at some point, well, you can't do it without learning some new tricks. So whether that means education at school or at university or an apprenticeship or training on the job, failing to prepare is preparing to fail, as they say. But we also know that there is a real skill shortage in the UK. We simply don't have anywhere enough electricians to be able to fit the millions of EV charging points, heat pumps, solar panels and the million and one other gizmos that are being developed to help us transition away from fossil fuels. And that presents both a massive challenge and a huge opportunity. So knowing that we need more people Where are they going to come from? How do we train them? How do we diversify the workforce? And how quickly can we do it? Well, I'm joined today by Ruth Devine, who's a boss. She's MD at SJD Electrical, based in Milton Keynes. And Jill Nichols, who's also a boss, Head of Construction and Transport at the Institute for Apprenticeships and Technical Education. Jill, first of all, what does IFATE actually do? So IFATE, Institute for Apprenticeships and Technical Education, which stands for quite a lot and is growing. So our core business is to develop occupational standards, which then become apprenticeships and or T-levels and soon HTQs or higher technical qualifications in full and more products to follow. So everything to do with developing apprenticeships and technical education. And what's the current situation then regarding skills in the UK? So where we are at the moment is probably a hugely exciting and challenging time for both ourselves, but especially employers. You will probably remember, or you may not remember, a good few years ago, the Richards Review said that training was not fit for purpose in terms of employers and people were not coming out of education with this, the skills that employers needed. Fast forward to last year and the skills bill, and that really has put skills in the hands of employers. So not just nationally, so not just working with the likes of ourselves, developing the content of occupational standards and apprenticeships, but also now at a local level, so local skills plans. Now, it really is, as I say, exciting that employers can shape all of those things, but it's also hugely challenging, especially in this sector. So, obviously, construction in the built environment, mainly SMEs. So, over 70% of the starts on apprenticeships, for example, are with SMEs. But how do SMEs find that time? Right. Exciting and challenging, though. I think you know, the, the, the opportunities are there, aren't they? And it's always important to remember that. Ruth Devine. You're the MD at SJD Electrical based in Milton Keynes. 
tell us a bit about who you are and what SJD actually do. Thanks, Rob. So I run Electrical Engineering Contractor. We deliver electrical and building services engineering projects for local clients, high-tech manufacturing, industrial, and for construction contractors. So things like prisons, hospitals, research. And I've been in the industry since 2006, and I took over the business entirely about five years ago. We've always had a challenge recruiting enough of the right type of people, which is why I became involved in skills development about 10 or so years ago. I've been involved with the Institute for the last five years as an employer advising on development of new technical education programmes. And I have a number of industry skills roles, including chair of the Electrotechnical Skills Partnership, which is a bit of a mouthful, so I'll say TESP. Um, And they try and engage with the widest proportion of industry employers and bodies to really drive skills and make sure the standards and qualifications are fit for purpose. And we're talking specifically about the the changing skills that are needed as part of the the net zero transition. How is that actually changing things then? I mean, what what kind of new skills are we talking about? So the government set out the um, net zero strategy last year saying we need to kind of decarbonise our homes, our vehicles, our power generation. So there's a real drive for increased electrification of heating, of power, of connectivity and the electrician and electrotechnical core skill set is vital to deliver what we need. So there's a substantial future growth needed in terms of people upskilling in terms of net zero technologies and making sure yeah, that, we, that we can deliver what we need at the pace that we need it. So luckily, the sector has a real solid history over 150 years of adapting to changes in technology from the old streetlights to LED lighting. We're going to be making lots of changes then. Are we actually in a position to be able to make those changes? As a a boss, as a business owner, are you confident that we're going in the right direction? I think we are. It's just about the capacity to get there fast enough. So an electrician who's been trained properly will have the knowledge and behaviours and skills to adapt installation of any type of electrical equipment. So it's just have we got enough people in the right places to deliver, whether it's a big hydrogen plant or an air source heat pump or an electric vehicle charger, If you understand the specification and requirements, you can design and install to meet the need. It's purely a numbers game, I think. Have we got enough people coming forward in the future, the right kind of people, the right skill set, being trained in the right way to deliver the ambitions of the government and the world, really? And the answer to that is? Not yet. Nearly. Possibly. (laughs) With, With enough support from employers. But as Jill was saying, in our sector of the 47,000 or so enterprises, more than 99% employ less than 10 people. So that's a big challenge to pull in enough apprenticeships in those organisations and support them through the four years that it takes, let alone the additional skills needed to to kind of specialise in certain technologies. Absolutely. And and Jill, I mean, there's a real issue over the numbers of people who are just coming in at the bottom end at the moment, isn't it? I think we're talking about needing at least 12,000 a year apprentices coming in and we're a long way short of that at the moment. We are indeed, yeah, right across the sector, not just in Electrotech. We have a number of entry points. We always have done. But the right entry points that work for employers and produce the competence levels that employers need are the challenge. So we have apprenticeships that's, I mean, I know I'm biased given the name of our organisation, but apprenticeships are the best route in. Um, There is a building services engineering T-level 
which will bring in another entry point into the route. But of course, there's the, there's the full-time college courses which haven't overly been overly successful in the past. I think stats show that only about 40% of students who complete a full-time college course enter the sector. So we need to look at all that. We need to make sure it's all joined up, bring them all together. So we open up the entry points to the occupations in the sector as best we possibly can and they're all meeting employer requirements hence the need to involve employers because as, as Ruth was saying a moment ago most SMEs that are involved in the sector are employing 10 people or less aren't they so you're talking about lots and lots and lots of individuals who need to know that this stuff is available at all and I think it's probably fair to say that the wider public doesn't even know what a T-level is yes I would agree. Uh, there's a lot of work going on at the moment to promote T-levels. I'm actually seeing it on my social media feeds every every hour, I think, at the moment. But it's going to take time, as with anything that's new. And parents with those those attitudes that, that my child will go to university rather than an apprenticeship, we need to get over all of that, A-levels rather than T-levels. So, yes, there's a lot of work to do in terms of marketing and promoting T-levels, but there's more come on board over the next year or so. So, obviously, engineering and manufacturing come on board in the autumn which would be a great stride forward. We do hope that T-levels become a a positive choice for both parents and students and probably the schools in their careers advice as well, because that's where it's very much lacking at the moment. It really is. And and Ruth, as as a business owner, and you're at the sharp end of actually bringing people into the industry and talking to kids as they're coming through, do they know enough about the kind of opportunities that are available? Not very often. So I was engaging our local college and talking to our level two students a number of weeks ago. The issue of the current full time, not the T level, is that there isn't enough work experience in there. So the T level is a a great opportunity to really embed 20 percent of the learning in the workplace. So we do need employers to step up and provide these work placements, which can be a day a week or block release for a few weeks to give students at the earliest stage a real taste of what the industry is like and other engagements such as work experience days, shadow days, engaging in schools. So, yeah, it's, it's difficult if you've been studying in a classroom for two years and you haven't actually seen what your going to be doing with that knowledge and skill that you're learning so that's why the apprenticeship is the ideal option t-level is also a good entry point but we just need to get a bit more of the culture of if i'm an employer and i want talent in the future i need to be doing something with my local schools and colleges i need to be supporting them i need to be supporting the students to understand what possible careers there are in the sector and there are so many and it's a really good sector it's kind of recession proof i shouldn't say that but it's it's always there's always work for a good electrician there's always opportunity and the progression from a starting electrician at 20, 30, 35, 40,000 pounds to an electrical engineer is, is vast and the earning capacity is, is huge. Leading the charge, opportunity in transition. This episode is sponsored by JTL. JTL is the leading work-based learning provider in the building services engineering sector across Wales and England. Learn more about how they are leading the charge towards a more sustainable future on our digital series website, leadingthecharge.eca.co.uk. Leading the charge, opportunity in transition. So what do we do then to let the wider public, you know, kids who are 13, 14, 15, and they're going to be making their GCSE choices and they're going to be thinking about careers. How do we let them know that there is a good 
career opportunity out there. Does government need to be doing more? Do we need like a, a big ad campaign just to let people know that the opportunities are there to get people in as apprentices? Well, I've been involved as an enterprise advisor with a careers and enterprise company for a long time and been engaging. And I think there is the way the government has changed their career strategy, the National Career Service, there is a lot more resource there. But it's capacity in schools, it's capacity in colleges. There aren't enough specialists for education teachers. The sector is so well paid as an operative that it's hard to encourage people to go into the further education sector. So it's, it's more about capacity, I think, rather than the structure and the policy. I think that's pretty much right. The new qualification reforms coming through will make the landscape simpler and easier. But it's just a bit of a culture change, I think. And it needs to be a big one, doesn't it, Jill? Yeah, I would completely agree with everything that Ruth said there. It is a culture change. So, for example, and I think Ruth and I have a, a, a child the same age, and um, my daughter has chosen a T-level route, but the school hadn't heard of T-levels. They didn't tell her about, well, they didn't even tell her about technical education. They told her about A-levels and she had to educate her colleagues or her, her cohort and her teachers on what a T-level was. So we have a long way to go. As, as Ruth said, there's some great initiatives like the Careers Enterprise Company, not going to uni and uh, obviously our own National Career Service. But yeah, big education piece. So th- 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 there seems to be a real problem then with the education system in the country fundamentally not being geared up to try and get young people to go into trades that they somehow kind of think well if you don't do a levels and go to university then that's a failure and that's a real mindset change that's got to happen on a really fundamental level absolutely there's absolute snobbery still exists i have (laughs) i shouldn't say this in case he hears it but i have a brother who would never think of doing anything but send his children onto A-levels and then onto university. He's even tried to bribe my daughter by giving her money to go to private school to do A-levels and um, onto university. So if that is a commonplace view of parents across the country, then we've got a big culture shift to go and we really need to sell the benefits. So we need case studies of apprentices and obviously in the future years, T-level students as well. Well, I can see a case study sitting in the studio there in Milton Keynes. Ruth, you're a woman who's actually gone into the industry. Why did you do it? What was your routine? I think as many people that get into industry, it's a family connection. So my dad was an electrical engineer. He had a business. He needed some help. I kind of came in to help him out and got stuck, really. So then I had to learn a new industry. I was in a manufacturing business before for 10 years and I had to kind of understand this industry and how to succeed and grow the business in it. And the way we did that was apprenticeships and skills. We had the right quality people delivering the right quality service. We've eventually managed to attract female electricians in as well. So we have two female electricians. And there is a challenge. However, this sector is very good at what it's doing in comparison to some of the other sectors. So we have around 7,000 apprenticeship starts this year. We have a good 100 or so, nearly 200 apprenticeship providers. Over 100 colleges offer the the piece, which doesn't always happen in other parts of the construction or engineering sector. So I think the infrastructure is there. It just needs ramping up. Is there a kind of a reluctance among small business owners? And, And we've already established that an awful lot of electrical technical businesses are smaller, that they've got 10 employees or less. Is there a reluctance or a difficulty 
for those smaller businesses to take on an apprentice? There's a long tradition of training apprentices. I think it's, it's a capacity issue. So you, you take one, it takes four years to grow them. They have to be adequately supervised in that time. Can you afford to take another one? Possibly, but it's you have to stagger it and you have to make sure they're getting the quality experience so they come out occupationally competent because it is a safety critical role. So it's it's a numbers game. It's how many can you physically train properly and give them the right experience and that will be harder in a smaller company. Now I want to bring in the the D word now, diversity, and I'm enormously heartened by the fact that both of you are ladies who are very senior within the electrotechnical sector, but you are also very unusual because 98% of people who are working in the electrotechnical industries in the UK are men. So Jill, (laughs) What do we do about that? Because if you're missing out on 50% of the potential workforce, that's a huge pool of people you can tap into. It is. And the trends we are seeing are positive. They are changing. And I I go back to my old adage of case studies and the people surrounding them need to be female. So they need to see Ruth, for example, and what what Ruth's achieved. Their tutors need to be female. There need to be other female students on on programme. It's trying to dampen down that image that the sector is very male-orientated and, you know, great case studies. And often we see them that the girls on the on the programmes finish top and get awards. And we see them at, at the likes of the ECA awards and things like that. That needs to be promoted more. But it's, it's a huge challenge across the sector, not just electrotech. Getting females into the sector is something that we we think about, we worry about, we um, try and come up with new initiatives about every single year. I mean, you're a woman, you're in the industry. What experiences have you had then that you can kind of usefully learn from? Are, Are bosses, in general terms, reluctant to take women on or is it just that there aren't enough coming through for them to take on in the first place? When I was interviewed as an engineer, I was asked when I planned to get pregnant. So I know you can't ask that nowadays, but that was my interview experience when I I was a young engineer. So move forward, it is lack of them coming forward. So they'd they'd, they'd love to employ more women, I'm sure, but we need more to come forward first. And uh, Ruth, as an employer... Are there practical difficulties about employing women that you have to think about then? Or is there just advice that you can give to smaller companies to say, look, really, it's not a problem. You can work around this. There's no practical difficulties. There's no there's no difference in ability or capacity or, or attitude. And I'd even say the attitude from the female electricians we employ is... It's excellent, if not if not better than the majority of, of the other operatives. So, and, and they, they kind of... The talent and the progression is fantastic. I think one of the issue is recruitment practices. It does tend to be an industry where people know somebody that's in the industry and they know a job's available and then they recruit somebody's son or brother or cousin. We need to make sure we're advertising all opportunities so people that are interested can, can see them and can respond to them and can come forward and have the opportunity. I think another issue is the traditional way of training in colleges where it is large male teenage cohorts. Women could be intimidated by that. And I have seen some really good examples of providers offering women only induction days or taster days to try and get more of a balance and and cohorts in the practical skills teaching that are just female, just to make them feel more comfortable. 
So there's evidence that female-only groups in STEM subjects does improve participation and retention. So I think providers need to do a bit more in terms of making women feel more comfortable in that environment and then giving them support they need to progress their careers. And I think we've been putting quite a lot of pressure on these small business owners to, to make a change here. But I mean, do we need to be seeing the big players step up to the plate and actually lead by example and get more women, more people from different ethnic backgrounds into the industry and just make it more visible, let people know that they can do it? Well, there aren't that many really big players. I think there's only about 40 that have turnover of over 5 million. So the ones that I'm aware of do have quite big balanced recruitment pots because you have to now. You can't really be a big company and only be recruiting from the same demographic. It's about demand as well. It's about encouraging people from different backgrounds at the very earliest stages in primary school, that these opportunities are available to them and breaking these stereotypes and also encouraging the parents to break their long form stereotypes and thinking about actually what skills does my child have? What careers are they suited to? And if they have a good grasp of maths and English and science subjects, they want a diverse working environment where they're going from different different places and different days, different challenges, then yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic fantastic career for them. Jill? As I said earlier, it is that stereotypical view of parents as to the snobbery, but actually earning potential in this sector is probably far higher than somebody who goes to university for three or four years. So lots and lots, as I say, of awareness raising needs to happen. But yes, larger companies, from our experience, do meet the the diversity requirements but as Ruth says they're they're few and far between particularly in this this sector. And it is extraordinary when you consider how big the opportunities actually are. I just had a look at the figures this morning there's currently more than 40 million licensed vehicles in the UK at the moment and we know that come 2030 there should be no further new petrol diesel vehicles sold. That means there's a gigantic number of EV chargers alone that are going to have to be fitted throughout the UK. And then you put all the other stuff on top of that. The the opportunities are gigantic. I mean, is it just one of these things that people haven't cottoned on to that yet? Well, it's, it's happening now. So the infrastructure rollout has been happening for a number of years and it has accelerated at pace. Test with Commission PyTate to undertake some research into what the need is, how many electricians are needed, breaking it down to make government industry understand a bit more about the opportunity and how we put the infrastructure in place to support training and development. But luckily, an electrician doesn't need very much upskilling to be able to move into the EV sector. And the new domestic electrician standard and the revised installation electrician standards will have EV content in. So people will be taught from the beginning to be able to fully be competent in that area. Jill, you're nodding away there. I am. It, it just reminds me of a visit I made in July to the Z House. I'm not sure if anybody has heard of the Z House. Tell us about it. Based at the University of Salford, and it's owned by Barrett's, who are a home builder of, you know, fairly generic, brand new housing stock at the moment. But to see the technology in that home, and to think that that is going to become mass manufacture fairly soon is really quite exciting but it really laid it home to me as to how many highly qualified electricians we're going to need to be able to do that because everything was connected okay so talk about specifics there that you know the 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 home of the future yeah so yes there's ev charging but there's two-way 
uh, two-way use of that electricity. So the car will charge the house, the house will charge the car to reduce the use of energy consumption, which is obviously a hot topic given the way that energy bills are going. The BEM systems, the building energy management systems that are in the house that control everything, control the size of the droplets in the shower, for example. Wow. It's just phenomenal where this is going in terms of technology. It's a, and it, that makes to me it makes it a really really exciting career to get into because you are going to become absolutely core to helping to make the country and obviously the planet net zero even by just working for a company like Barrett's or like Taylor Wimby who produce mass housing estates. And this is the thing, isn't it, that we need to have a lot more cooperation and collaboration between the different bits of the industry, which if if you're building houses or whatever structures you're creating and it's going to have some sort of electrical stuff going into it, you need to be talking to architects, you need to be talking to people who are actually doing stuff from the ground up in the first place so that it's all part of the thought process right from the off. Absolutely. Yes, it's everybody has a significant part to play to achieve that end result. And Ruth, are we actually seeing that in the real world now? Yeah, I think so. The supply chains are quite well established. Design teams, client specifiers, architects. Maybe the smaller companies don't always have the design capacity that's needed. So I think there will be more progression needed to higher level qualifications in the future around building services, engineering, design. But the pathways are there. It's just filling in the gaps. And the T-level is actually a good start for that because it gives you more of an academic grounding into the whole building service engineering sector rather than focusing on the pure practical knowledge for an electrician. We talked a lot about apprenticeships and people coming in as young people into the bottom end. There's another big phenomenon that's out there, which is to do with older people who may have left their careers or in the great resignation over COVID and now are looking to get back into the workplace. How difficult is it for people to change career or to move across once they're a bit older? Is there there a barrier there that needs to be taken down? There's a defined pathway. So TESS publishes a training routes, one of which is how you move into the industry as a self-funded career changer. There's defined level two and level three technical knowledge. It will always end in workplace based experience to become fully qualified and an endpoint assessment aligned to the apprenticeship standards. So everybody's meeting the same benchmark. The difficulty is twofold, really. There are a number of providers that offer inferior training routes that aren't recognised. And TESP has a rogue trainers campaign to try and educate people away from spending £8,000, say, on becoming an electrician when there is no real possibility of that happening. And there's having the capacity, again, employers waking up and saying, right, this person has done, they're motivated, they're an adult, they're reliable, they've done their technical knowledge, let's finish them off. And we have just recruited an ex-forces person who leaves the army on the 12th of September. He's studied himself during his period of of resettlement and he comes to us highly motivated and ready to to get his MBQ and, and finish himself off. He's been working previously he appreciates the experience is quite limited. The provider involved has probably sold him a bit more of a, it can be done quicker than it can, but he's accepted that. He wants to become a full engineer and he's coming to us in his early 40s to become qualified. So we've done that about two or three times in the past and the individuals that we have, they're very loyal, they stay with you, they're mature, they're responsible, they're good customer service advocates and they're real ambassadors for the business and they appreciate that you've taken the time to train them and then they train other people. So it's it's a good learning culture. It's, it strengthens the business. It helps grow the business. 
But I think employers can think these people don't know very much. Well, they don't necessarily, but they're motivated and willing to learn. So we can't ignore that big pool of career changes that is already out there, wants to get in, studying on their own back. But they have to be given the right experience and supervision to become fully competent. Jill, I mean, it's all about support, isn't it? It is all about support. I just wanted to add to to Ruth's comment in terms of routes in for older learners in that the apprenticeship is available to people of any age. And obviously, we break down our data in the reports that we produce in terms of 16 to 18, 19 to 24 and 25 plus. And 25 plus numbers are buoyant and funding is available for learners on apprenticeships of any age has you know I, I do remember that the stat for the oldest learner were, were they were in their 70s so apprenticeships can keep going but as you say it's about support it's about bespoke support through the training both from the employer but specifically if you're a 60 year old amongst a cohort of 18 year olds you're going to have slightly different needs to um to that group of 18 year olds Absolutely, absolutely. So there's two other words I want to bring into the conversation now. One is inertia and the other is cynicism. There are some people who have done things a particular way for a long, long time and they don't see any need to change. And there are others who maybe think to themselves, well, this is all something, it's going to happen at some point in the future, but actually my business is fine. I don't really need to think about that now because I've got a full order book and I know what I'm doing for the next six months. So we'll worry about that at some point in the future. Are those two things genuine concerns as a business owner i'm kind of aware of both of them because you don't want to move too quickly and invest too much money and then and then be at risk in something that's not quite happening and i think probably historically government likes to change its mind quite a lot and until things are actually happening as a small business you you kind of want to see it's happening however it's not going away so i think you do need to be investing in the skills that are required then you're going to have a competitive advantage over your competitors in the future Um, but it is We need the providers, I think, to wake up a bit and start offering the technologies and and start having the capacity of education available. Because currently, if I wanted to train somebody in air source heat pumps, I can't do that locally. I can't even do plumbing locally. So it's we need the infrastructure there to help businesses. We probably need some kind of incentives like we had in the solar PV boom to get people trained up and upskilled. But what a level of inertia and cynicism is kind of practically helpful as a business owner to to an extent. That totally makes sense because you've got to approach these things knowing that you've got money in the bank to actually keep the business going. And that's a fundamental issue, isn't it, Jill? It is. And we see it from our side of things as well. I mean, we'd love... SMEs to work with us to help design the products of the future or the content of the products of the future. But we recognise they they need to bring in the money because they're, they're SMEs, their day jobs. You know, if I take somebody from a large employer, it's probably going to be their HR manager who can afford the time or their training manager. If I take somebody from a, an SME, it's likely to be the managing director who is not making money whilst they're working with us. So that is a, a huge um, balance that we need to try and find to make it easier for them to be involved in designing those skills for the future and being prepared for the future whilst also running their business. I just want to say well that's where organizations like ECA and TESP come in because they're having conversations on a daily basis with employers and they can then feed that information back to the institute. So there's wide consultation, there's wide regional networks, there's lots of conversations happening and skills is always a hot topic. It's getting consensus sometimes as what's important, what can be done in a kind of 
evolutionary fashion rather than a big revolution and, and ripping up everything that's gone before and, and starting again. It has to be progression that people are comfortable with. So let's move on then to thinking about what our key takeaways are from this conversation today. We've, we've talked across an awful lot of things, but Ruth, what do you think professionals in the electrotechnical sector really need to be doing about skills development? What's the key takeaway you want people to have from this conversation? Well, ideally engaging in some way in education. So whether that's supporting a local college with guest lectures or project management of projects, offering site visits, ideally offering work experience and industry placements, hiring apprentices, taking T-level students. That's the biggest thing. We need, we need more engagement to make sure that the careers are promoted to the widest possible people, that lecturers understand how industry is now and not necessarily how it was 20, 30 years ago when, when they came up through the ranks. Yes, it just industry into education is my key ask, really. And Jill, what's the main thought that you want people to take away from this conversation from your perspective? I think it just builds on on what Ruth says in that we want employers to talk to us. And if there are barriers to them getting involved, tell us so that we can try and remove those barriers and still be able to take their views, their the, the suggested content of the products of the future without being a burden to them. So we want them to be involved, but please tell us how they can. My son is 19, my daughter's 17. What should I say to them to suggest to them that actually a career as an electrician is a good idea? Well, you can highlight them to the Test Electrical Careers website, which shows a number of different case studies about how electricians can, how their day looks, what they do, how they can progress into different roles. It depends on their skills and aptitude, doesn't it? So there's no point pushing people into a role that they're not going to be comfortable doing. So it, it does involve a high level of autonomy, a high level of problem solving, maths and science skills. But there's a large number of people out there where it is a suitable career for and they just need to be welcomed in. So employers, teachers, industry need to find ways of pushing this out more so more people can come and be supported to progress into the industry. Well, Ruth, Jill, thank you both for being with me today. Another electrifying discussion on the current issues in the electrotechnical industry, looking for a positive way forward into a decarbonised future. I'm off to go and retrain as an electrician. I'll see you all next time. Thanks once again to our episode sponsor, JTL. You can read, watch and learn more about their work and about the full Leading the Charge series by going to leadingthecharge.eca.co.uk or simply searching for Leading the Charge online. And don't forget to visit contentwithpurpose.co.uk or find us on social to check out more of our podcast collaborations.